says it's the end of time And the Mississippi River, she's a gold dry The interest is up and the stock market's down And you're only getting mugged if you go downtown I live back in the woods, you see A woman and the kids and the dogs and me Got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive, and a country boy can survive. Country folks can survive. Welcome to the show, folks. This is the Trump phenomenon. And it's Tuesday. Good evening. Jeff Bennett here. Last week, we ran a two-hour series that I have not run in quite some years called Cast a Giant Shadow. And I was going absolutely bonkers trying to find what, in effect, became the third part of that series. Um, I received many requests for the written transcript of the programs we did last week. I no longer make CDs available. You certainly can pick up the the uh, archives off of uh, RBN. And when we sent the written transcript out, it included the transcript for an extended version or an extended chapter of the series, which we're going to be running tonight. It's called Touch of Evil. Now, I know that somewhere late in this recording you're going to listen to, there's probably an advertisement to order the CD. I don't make them available any longer. There's also a phone number that's probably listed that has not been in in use for some 10, 12 years. Um, So kind of ignore all of that. Let's get to the program. Let's get to it. But understand, this is the last time I'm ever going to air it. It's the last time that I'm ever going to get involved with this discussion. And and what this issue is all about. So let's get it done. Sam, thanks for your patience with this, and uh, I'll see you tomorrow night with uh, to health with you.
Today's our touch of evil, the missing pieces of history we're going to address today. We're going to attempt to answer a question. Does Israel belong to the Jews? The fact of the matter is, it is a hotly contested question. One that I suppose in one form or another has been under debate for considerable length of time. But given what is taking place in that region of the world today makes it even more important to understand the basis for what has happened in many respects over the course of the last 70 years or so in this nation, or not so much in this nation, but around the world. Some weeks ago, we did a two-part series entitled Cast a Giant Shadow. This, in effect, becomes a continuation of that series. What we share with you today is a brief summary taken from a brand new work compiled by Amalek Productions, who have spent the last 15 years studying the history of Germany's struggle during the 20th century through two world wars. It provides a controversial viewpoint on the history of the run-up to the Second World War. This brief summary is but a tiny snippet of a large work currently available only on CD-ROM, which will cover numerous aspects of the history of the wars from Germany's perspective. And yet we will go back much, much further than that. You see, history leads us to believe that the German people had an inborn irrational hatred of Jews and were only waiting for someone like Hitler to come along and allow them to express it. Nothing, my friends, could be further from the truth. For many years, you see, when Germany was still a monarchy... The Jews integrated very well into German society, and many prospered and contributed much towards the country. And because of this, many thousands and thousands of Jews who were being persecuted in other European countries, such as Russia and Poland, fled to Germany looking for peace and safety. For these past 70 years, we've been told how the Germans suddenly contracted a form of madness and began hating and murdering Jews. We've been told a million times how bad the Germans were, and yet what we share with you today will offer you a fast and yet incomplete overview of how the build-up to World War II began long before Hitler was elected. And so we begin. 1897. The first Zionist Congress was held in Basel, Switzerland, under the leadership of Theodore Herzl. Now, Zionism, as you know, is the political arm of Judaism, and it was created to fulfill Jewish political ambitions, which included the creation of Jewish homelands. It is claimed protocols of these meetings were kept, and these protocols have been a source of trouble ever since. 1905, the first copy of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion surfaces in Russia. A year later in Russia, the Protocols are, it is claimed by many, to be the plans for Zionist world domination. Now, the Jews vehemently deny this and claim the Protocols are forgeries. But humans tend to act on their beliefs, not on facts. Millions of people worldwide believe the Protocols were written by the Jews. Adolf Hitler and many of his party members had read the protocols. You should probably read them, too, so that you may judge for yourself. 
1914. World War I breaks out in Europe. Do you know why? Because Germany was growing into a major European economic power, and Great Britain, France, and Russia felt threatened by this industrious nation. That's the reason why. Once again, money seems to be at the basis of all that is evil in this world. 1916, Great Britain and France are losing the war. German Zionist groups approached the British War Office with an offer to bring the United States into the war if the British government promises to give Palestine to the Jews as a Jewish homeland. The British agree. Lord Balfour gives the Balfour Declaration to Lord Rothschild. President Wilson was then blackmailed by the U.S. Zionists, to whom he owed a lot of money, into dragging the United States into World War I. 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution begins in Russia. Now, the Bolsheviks were led by Jews who hated the Tsarist regime, and the Bolshoys were funded with more than $20 million from the United States Jewish bankers Jacob Schiff and Kuhn Loeb. After many assassination attempts, the Russian Tsarist family is forced to abdicate and are imprisoned by Bolshevik revolutionaries. A year later, they are murdered by the same revolutionaries. 1918, Germany defeated, not militarily on the front line, but on the home front. Stirred on by their success, the Russian Bolsheviks send large amounts of money and weapons and agitators to Germany who cause massive unrest, strikes, and upheavals amongst dock and factory workers, destroying the military supply lines to the troops at the front. The Bolsheviks have planned to take over Germany, France, Great Britain, Hungary, and Spain. The Jewish Bolshevik leaders in Germany, Karl Radek, Karl Liebknecht, and Rosa Luxemburg, try a revolutionary takeover in Berlin, but are captured and later executed. The German Kaiser abdicates, fearing the same fate as his Russian Tsarist relatives. The Protocols of Zion demand the removal of all monarchies, and they are quickly being fulfilled, unless you believe they are forgeries, of course, in which case they are still being fulfilled. In this same year, Poland takes advantage of Germany's defeat and annexes large areas of German territory. 1919. The Versailles Treaties are signed in Paris, and although the Zionists had not fought in the war, 117 Zionists arrived in Paris, led by Mr. Bernard Baruch. They carry with them the Balfour Declaration and demand the British keep their promise to give them Palestine. If any ethnic group in your country sold you out to an enemy, forcing you to lose a war, would you consider that sellout to be an act of hate and treason? Well, so did the Germans. But they did nothing against the Jews that sold them out. Poland sets up the first concentration camps in Europe, imprisoning tens of thousands of ethnic Germans and Ukraines. And the Russian Bolsheviks set up the gulags and imprisoned almost everyone. 1920. Large Jewish banks in the United States invest in German industry and make large loans to Germany to rebuild after World War I, not because they like Germans. But they know a healthy industry brings back healthy profits and large loans bring in large interest payments. Poland annexes more German territory and begins driving tens of thousands of Germans off their lands and out of their homes. 1923. Germany can no longer pay the more than 270 billion Reichsmarks 
in reparations to the Allies. They can no longer afford to buy their own coal back from the Allies to drive their factories and heat their ovens. The Germans go into passive resistance. France and Belgium send in troops. Moscow-backed Bolshevik Jewish revolutionaries begin armed revolts in various cities around Germany, such as Hamburg and Bremen. The revolutionaries are aided and abetted in their attempts at creating chaos by the international Jewish bankers in New York who send the German currency, the Reichsmark, which is tied into the international exchange rate into a complete and massive dive. Within months, the Reichsmark is worthless. Unable to feed their families or pay rents, millions of Germans are forced to sell all which they own. The altered exchange rates mean that one U.S. dollar becomes worth many trillions of Reichsmarks. You see, for only a few dollars, Jewish-American investors buy up German businesses, industries, homes, land, artworks, jewelry. By the end of the year, the German government manages to create a new currency, and the madness is halted. Millions of Germans have lost everything they own. Thousands have starved to death. The Jewish investors become incredibly rich. The Germans still do nothing against these speculators. Oh, just the opposite. Many of them gain high political and respectable positions in German society. Bolsheviks and National Socialists are now fighting for control of Germany by 1933. The Germans see what is happening to the Russian people under Bolshevism and vote overwhelmingly for Adolf Hitler. Now, Hitler is very clear about the role played by the Jews in Germany's defeat in World War I and the currency devaluation of 1923 and 24, and decides to deport all of them to Palestine, as also promised by the British. However, the British now need Arab oil, so they blockade Hitler's efforts to send the Jews to Palestine. Only weeks after Hitler is elected, and because of Hitler's decision to deport Jews from Germany, American Zionist groups, seeing their sphere of influence in Europe dwindling, declare war on Germany. And on the 24th of March, 1933, now the Germans have had enough. The Germans stage a one-day boycott of Jewish shops and businesses. 1936, the Bolsheviks are still trying to take over Spain. Hitler sends his troops to help General Franco. Thousands of German Jews travel to Spain to support the Bolsheviks and fight against the fascists. 1939, 1st of September, midnight, Poland declares war on Germany. Radio Warsaw claiming that Polish troops would be in Berlin by the end of the week. Poland, you see, had 40 infantry divisions up against 35 German divisions and were on home ground. Five hours later, Hitler moved his troops into Poland. 3rd of September, 1939, Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. Also, the Polish militia slaughter 5,700 German civilians in Bromberg. September 6th, Chaim Weissman, head of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, officially joins the Allies in the war. And so, you see, my friends, if we add it up, we have two Jewish declarations of war, Great Britain and the British Commonwealth, France and Poland declare war on Germany, and then they have the nerve to say Hitler began this war? Hitler wasn't even in power when they decided to control Germany. 1948. Three years after the war is over, Israel was officially declared of Germany to be an enemy of the state of Israel. 800 years of hate and agitation led to two world wars, my friends. 800 years of hate and agitation led to two world wars. Now we're going to go back further in history. We've given you the short of it at this point in time. But we need to go back further 
much further. The Jewish Talmud extols the Jews to destroy their enemies, the Amalek, before the Amalek destroys Israel. Now, according to the Talmud, the Amaleki, also known as Edomites, live in Germania or Germany. The Jews have therefore considered the Germans to be their hereditary enemies since before the Holy Roman Empire. We hold the course of European history to have been an ongoing and deadly struggle between Judaism and Christianity. The Jews have moved into every country in Europe and tried to take control over it. The Jews consider themselves to have been chosen by God to rule the world, and they have schemed and planned and used their considerable resources of wealth to this very end. Oh, don't start laughing about this until you've gotten to the bottom of this hour. So if you want to know who started World War I and II, then stay with us. In the year 1144, Jews in Norwich, England are accused of murdering a Christian child in a blood ritual. 1239, the Talmud is banned and burnt in France and Rome because it promotes hate and violence against Gentiles. 1290, King Edward I bans all Jews from England because they carry out blood rituals. And by the year 1516, accused of blood rituals and the ritual murder of Christian children, many Jews in Italy are executed and the Jews in Venice are forced to live in a ghetto. 1530, Antonius Maritha, son of the rabbi Samuel Hershuter, writes in his book entitled The Complete Book of Jewish Belief that the Talmud states, quote, the Jews must always hate the Germans for they are their hereditary enemies, end quote. The year 1543, a new book hits the market called The Jews and Their Lies, written by Pastor Martin Luther. In 1648, Ukraine peasants led by Bogdan Chelmiecki revolt against the Polish landowners and their Jewish tax collectors. From a four-year period of time of 1789 to 1793, they had this little thing called the French Revolution. And guess what? It was financed by the Rothschild family. In one of our previous series entitled Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief, we endeavored to cover the history of the Rothschild family in depth. It establishes some groundwork that is most interesting and amazing. Now, the French Revolution had the express purpose of putting people into power in France that could be controlled by the Rothschilds. This form of conspiracy has been repeated by the international financiers throughout the centuries. Even Winston Churchill wrote about the Jewish conspiracy when he said they played a definitely recognizable part in the French Revolution. The Jewish conspiracy, Churchill continues, has been the mainspring of every subversive movement during the 19th century. Now, this was an interview conducted of Winston Churchill on Sunday, February the 8th, 1920. In the year 1800, Johann Gottlieb Fichte writes, There is a powerful nation spreading its wings throughout Europe, which stands in an ongoing war with all other nations. And many citizens of the world are suffering because of them, and that is the nation of the Jews. 1866, Tsar Alexander of Russia puts restrictions on Jews and forbids them from holding government position. Now, he did this because they were plotting to depose the Tsar and the government. 
The Jews carried out their first assassination attempt against the Tsar. And in 1879, they attempt a second time to assassinate the Tsar. 1881. My great-grandmother was a year old at that time. And international Jewish bankers imposed economic sanctions against the Russian Empire, hoping to cause the peasants to revolt. The Jew, Hasia Helfman, succeeds in blowing up the Winter Palace, killing Tsar Alexander II. With this, Russia fell into turmoil and desperately needed money. The Russian government approached the Rothschilds for a loan. In exchange for A, demanding Russia make a pact with France, and B, lifting all restrictions against the Jews, and C, allowing them to hold government positions once again. The Russians got their money. The Franco-Russian pact was made to ensure the Rothschilds would get their money back. 1887, Lenin's brother Alexander was executed for attempting to murder Tsar Nicholas of Russia. 1893, March 26th, the German Jews, led by Raphael Lohenfeld, form an organization to force through their demands for German citizenship and against anti-Semitism. This group later called itself the Central Organization for German Citizens of Jewish Beliefs. They then moved into Germany from Kazakhstan and then demanded they be made German citizens. 1898, the first Zionist Congress, as we shared with you at the beginning of the hour, was held in Basel, Switzerland, under the leadership of Theodore Herzl. Remember, the U.S. banker Jacob Schiff and his Kuhnlo Bank began to finance the Russian revolutionaries. 1901. Jewish revolutionaries still trying to undermine the Tsar began a series of assassinations of Russian politicians, and by 1906, they had already murdered six. 1903, the Jew, Vladimir Ulyanov, assumes the name of Lenin and takes control of the Bolsheviks. Leading Jews meet in Brussels to coordinate Bolshevik plans and revolutionary ideals. 1904, in another attempt to destroy Russia economically and sow the seeds for a revolution, the Rothschilds involved Russia in a war with Japan. 1905, Tsar Nicholas II introduced wide-sweeping land reforms, giving large areas of land back to the farmers. The Bolsheviks countered by telling the people this was just a bluff and started a revolt against the Tsar led by another Jew by the name of Trotsky. Troops loyal to the Tsar put down the revolt. I read this bit of history talking about the Tsar whom history has made out to be such a bad and terrible man. And yet he introduced wide-sweeping land reforms nearly a hundred years ago to give land back to the farmers. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment... At the time of this recording, in the year of our Lord, 2002, if we had a leader, a real leader in this nation, this United States of America, who would step up to the plate, so to speak, and begin to take the land back on behalf of the people and give it back to our farmers. How long do you think it would be before that leader would be assassinated? 
1906. The Russian Prime Minister Stolyapin was assassinated by the Jew Mordecai Bograf. 1907, Bolsheviks hold another Congress in London of 312 delegates, 60% of which are Jews. 1909, the Jew Yevno Aziev attempts to assassinate Tsar Nicholas II, but was caught and executed. 1912, Switzerland. The assassination of Austrian Archduke Ferdinand is planned by a group of Bolshevik internationalists. The plan is to initiate a war between the European royal families and in the ensuing confusion create anarchy and revolution and overthrow them. Polish, French, British internationalists all hope to benefit from the revolution. France and Britain want Germany destroyed as an economic power. And the Poles hope that Russian forces will be driven out of Poland. 1914. The job of assassination is carried out by a Serbian group calling themselves the Order of the Black Hand. They carry out the murder. But they are merely puppets and did not plan the attack. 1914. World War One breaks out. Jews living in Germany at the time were living very well under the German Kaiser. And so the Jews in Russia moved en masse to the western border of Russia and began to support the German war effort. You heard me correctly. In 1914, Jews living in Russia were living well under the German Kaiser. And so the Jews in Russia moved to the western border of Russia and began to support the German war effort. Tsar Nicholas had them forcibly moved away from the border, back into the cities where they immediately began agitating against the Tsar. The agitation and sabotage resulted in extreme food shortages in the cities, further fueling the unrest. And although the Russian troops were promised weapons from Great Britain, the Rothschilds financed Vickers Maxim Company deliberately held back supplies of weapons, which did two things. First of all, the Russian army was slaughtered and weakened. And secondly, the Tsar was blamed for all of this. These events, you see, helped prepare the ground for revolution. 1916. Germany is winning the war. Until German Zionists approached the British War Cabinet. Once again, they offer to bring the USA into the war if the Limeys, the British, promised to give them Palestine in return. We know what happened after that. By the way, President Wilson, we spoke earlier about how the Zionists had blackmailed Wilson. Wilson, President Wilson, was in debt by $40,000, a very goodly sum of money in 1916, to Mr. Samuel Untermeyer. 1917, hoping to get the Russians off their back on the Eastern Front, the German government assisted 224 Bolshevik revolutionaries cross by train into Russia. Of the 224, 170 were Jews, including Lenin, Martov, Karl Radek. The rest were armed bodyguards. In Germany, the all-Jewish organization calling itself the Alldeutschenverband, which meant the All-German Club, led by Otto Arendt, 
distributed pamphlets claiming that World War I was started by them as a war of Jews against Germans. 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution begins in Russia. Determined to destroy the Tsarist monarchy, the Bolsheviks were funded with more than 20 million U.S. dollars from the United States Jewish bankers, from Jacob Schiff, from Kuhn Loeb, who to this very day are amongst the owners of our own Federal Reserve Bank. The entire Tsarist family is arrested by the revolutionaries. German and Austrian forces free Poland from the Russian forces. 1918, a group of Bolsheviks led by the Jew Yakov Yurovsky murders the captive Tsarist family, including as many relatives as they can possibly capture. In addition... Bolshevik revolutionaries during that year, funded and armed by Moscow and the U.S. bankers, began a revolt in Germany. Fearing the same fate as his cousin the Tsar, the German Kaiser abdicates and flees to Holland. And under Bolshevik agitation, strikes break out in Germany, destroying supplies to the front-line troops. And the Jewish minister, Erzberger, signs the surrender for Germany and accepts all Allied conditions. World War One comes to an end. I'll return in just a few moments. I've been waiting for something to happen for a week or a month or a year. With the blood and the ink of the headline And the sound of the crowd in my ear You might ask what it takes There's a shadow on the faces Of the men who fan the flame Stirred on by their successes in Russia, the Bolsheviks then set their sights on Germany, France, Hungary, and Spain. The Bolsheviks in Germany call themselves Spartakists. And under the leadership of the Jews, Karl Radek sent from Moscow, Karl Liebknecht and the Polish Jewess Rosa Luxemburg, street fighting breaks out in many German cities. Kyle, 
Hamburg, Berlin, Munich, Liebknecht, and Rosa Luxemburg are captured and executed by German troops. Now, the Jewess Ruth Fischer then takes over as head of the German Communist Party. In Bavaria, the Jews Muisham, Landauer, Levian, Levine, Eisner, and the Russian Jew Axelrod take control over the Bavarian parliament for a few days. 1919, the infamous Versailles Treaty is signed in Paris. 117 Zionists from the United States arrive in Paris, demanding Britain makes good on her promise to give them Palestine. Give them someone else's nation. 1919, October 31st, 14 years before Adolf Hitler is elected to Chancellor, the former governor of New York, Mr. Martin Glynn, writes an article in the American Hebrew magazine claiming... Six million Jewish men, women, and children are dying in a holocaust in Europe. Well, other than the fact that the entire article is total fiction, it makes one wonder where the infamous six million figure comes from some years later, does it not? 1920, large Jewish banks in the United States invest in Germany and make large loans to the industry, not because they like Germans but because they know a healthy industry brings in healthy profits and large loans big in the big interest. Most of Germany's industry by then is owned by the Jewish banks. In the same year, Poland annexes large areas of German territory and drives tens of thousands of Germans out of their homes and off their lands. 1923, the gold reserves depleted and bled dry by reparations. Germany can no longer pay its reparations. We know what happens by then. Germany is nearly bankrupt. To show the Germans who is boss, the Jewish banks destroy the German Reichsmark. Something we've covered in depth once again in our other series, Rich Man, Poor Man, Beggar Man, Thief. 1933. The Bolsheviks are still trying to take over control of Germany. But the Germans see what damage they have done to Russia, so they vote in Adolf Hitler as Chancellor. Hitler knows very well who is behind the financial destruction of the German currency in 1923, so he immediately takes the Reichsmark out of the International Currency Exchange and passes a law requiring all those Jewish investors who made billions of dollars off Germany to sell back their ill-gotten gains to the German government, and for the same price they paid for it. Well, this drives the Zionists out of their trees. So on the 24th of March, 1933, Judea declares war on Germany. Hitler decides on a final solution to the Jewish problems and decides to deport all Jews from Germany. Now, you can't blame him for that, can you? And he chooses to deport them to their promised land of Palestine. A Great Britain who first made that promise now needs the Arab oil, so it blockades Hitler's efforts to send the Jews to their promised homeland. The Germans decide to boycott the Jews, so they hold, once again, this one-day boycott of Jewish shops, which, by the way, was held on a Saturday when Jewish shops are closed for their Shabbat anyway. 1936, Bolshevik revolutionaries try to take over Spain. Tens of thousands of German Jews travel to Spain to fight for the Bolsheviks. But Hitler sends his troops, his Condor Legion, to support the democratic forces under Franco. 1936, more than 100 Jewish-American firms still operate in Germany, amongst them the Warburg Bank, 
the Kuhn Lower Bank, the Rothschild Bank, DuPont, Standard Oil, Coca-Cola, General Motors, which is then owned by J.P. Morgan, and they owned 100% of Opel, and they built all the German tanks. And what about Rock, Rockefeller Vacuum Oil? I.G. Farben. They were 50% owned by Standard Oil. After the war, many German managers of these firms were executed as war criminals. And yet none of the American owners were ever called to justice. 1939, September 1st, midnight, Poland declares war upon Germany. Polish troops in Prussia open fire on German border guards. Radio Warsaw claims Polish troops will be in Berlin by the weekend. At 5.45 a.m., Adolf Hitler ordered his troops to return fire and to attack Poland. September 3rd, Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. September 6th, Chairman Weissman, head of the Jewish Agency for Palestine, declares war on Germany. These, my friends, are historical documented facts. From 1144 to 1930, 800 years of Jewish aggression against Germany and other European countries. What right did the Jews have to conspire against any sovereign nation in Europe? What gave these Jews the right to destroy Germany's currency or create a revolution in Russia? Where in these dates can you find evidence that Jews were being unfairly treated. And so I ask you, my friends, who was it that started World War I and World War II? And let's see what the Torah, true Jews in New York, said about the involvement of Jews in World War I and World War II. The publication called the Torah, True Jews, on September the 30th, 1997, ran an ad titled, The Torah True Jews Have No Part in the Affair Against the Swiss. Now you remember, this is when the whole stirring up about, ah, the Swiss got all the gold out of the Jewish teeth and they stuck it in their vaults and they owe all this money. The article read, or the advertisement copy stated thusly, the Torah Jews have no part in the affair against the Swiss, according to the Torah. We must declare that the true Jews are opposed to these rebelling acts. Requests from, investigations of, accusations and claims against Switzerland, the banks, the government, the institutions, or any nation. We will not take any money or assets resulting therefrom. For sure, we are opposed to the boycott threats, coercive tactics, insults, and intimidation. This we know, that during the war, Switzerland was a safe haven for thousands of Jews, including those admitted from surrounding occupied countries, and Jews lived there peacefully. Moreover, Switzerland and Sweden provided, at great risk, safe houses in Budapest, which sheltered 100,000 Jews. We have been forsworn by God, the article continues, not to enter the Holy Land as a body before the predestined time, not to rebel against the nations, to be loyal citizens, not to do anything against the will of any nation or its honor, not to seek vengeance, 
discord, restitution, or compensation, not to leave exile ahead of time. On the contrary, we must be humble and accept the yoke of exile. To violate the oaths would result in, quote, your flesh will be made prey as the deer and the antelope in the forest, and the redemption will be delayed. Those words from Talmud, Tractate, Subos 111. To violate the oaths, the article continues, is not only a sin, it is heresy, because it is against the fundamentals of our belief. Before the Almighty gave us the Holy Land, 3,268 years ago, He made these conditions. If we will abide by the Torah, it is ours. If not, we shall be expelled. Alas, we sinned, and we were exiled from the land. Only through complete repentance will the Almighty alone, without any human effort or intervention, redeem us from exile. This will be after God will send the prophet Elihu in Mosiach, who will make all Jews do complete repentance. At that time, there will be universal peace. Any suffering in exile is a punishment from God, and we cannot do anything about it on our own because nations where we suffered are only instruments of God's anger at our misdeeds. The Torah teaches us how to survive during exile by being humble, not vindictive, demanding, or vengeful. The Torah gives an example of this and says that in the ocean, one must go under the wave. We have to take the punishment. If we go against it, we will only suffer more. The only way to alleviate suffering in exile is through repentance. We must mend our ways and pray that God should not punish us again. The Jewish people remained faithful to the belief for over 1,800 years and dealt with the problems of exile accordingly and never asked for things taken from them until the advent of Zionism 100 years ago. Hmm. Quite an astounding article, is it not? Zionists, my friends, do not believe that Jews are a special nation. But they say Jews are a nationalistic people, a nation like all the nations, and can solve their problems by their own power using the slogan, never again. They say that we Jews, and this is a continuance of this same article, they say that we Jews were exiled because we had a weak army and suffer in exile because we are not standing up physically and politically and are not speaking out loudly, unashamedly are letting ourselves be trampled on and are not demanding restitution. They claim that with a strong army we can remove ourselves from exile. By using the new atheist exile politics that provoked an increased anti-Semitism in Europe, which led to the Second World War and the destruction of European Jewry, all the great rabbis have warned of the terrible consequences of the Zionist heresy. The same exile politics has caused the problems in the Middle East where Jews live peacefully with the Arabs until the advent of Zionism. And now the same tactics are being used against the Swiss and other nations. The act alone of seeking compensation and restitution from a nation even without threats provokes anti-Semitism, whether or not they receive what they ask. Anti-Semitism is a phenomenon serving the basic goal of Zionism to increase immigration to their state. 
And this is evidenced by the fact that the whole campaign against the Swiss was initiated by the Zionist state, by Abraham Berg, head of the Jewish agency, the Zionist organization promoting immigration to the Zionist state. How could, the article goes on, the Zionist leaders in the World Jewish Congress, a major Zionist organization, have the nerve to ask for Jewish assets? The worldwide boycott against Germany in 1933 and the later all-out declaration of war against Germany initiated by the Zionist leaders and the World Jewish Congress so enraged Hitler that he threatened to destroy the Jews. And then the Wannsee Conference convened in January of 1942 decided the fate of the Jews, and the real suffering began. The Zionists also refused and blocked rescue efforts and food supplies during the war. Their motto was, only by blood will we get our land. We declare the Zionist state or any Zionist organization or one that calls itself World Orthodox Council and any individual involved in this issue does not represent the Torah, true Jews, the Torah true Jews plead with the politicians involved in this matter to stop dealing with this. We hereby proclaim that Zionism is a heresy and true Jews are not contaminated by Zionism. True Jews have no part in Zionist activities. According to the Torah, we are not allowed to insult, humiliate, or dominate another people. All land should be returned to the Palestinian nation and other occupied lands should be returned to Syria and Lebanon. Zionist politicians and their fellow travelers, even if they appear religious, do not speak for the Jewish people. Indeed, the Zionist conspiracy against Jewish tradition and law makes Zionism and all its deeds and entities the archenemy of the Jewish people. And so ends the ad from the New York Times, dated September 30th, 1997. There are other articles that continue to show the Swiss Holocaust cash, stash, so to speak, has been revealed to be a myth. And it's been revealed by this same group of Torah true Jews. One such article states, most dormant Swiss bank accounts thought to have belonged to Holocaust survivors were opened by wealthy non-Jewish people who then forgot about their money. A 17-member tribunal based in Zurich was set up in 1997 to investigate the identities of 5,500 foreign accounts and 10,000 Swiss accounts that have lain dormant since the end of Second World War. The tribunal said that it had processed about 10,000 claims in response to the list of dormant account names published by the Swiss Bankers Association five years ago. The Times, on October 13th of 2001, stated thusly, only 200 accounts could actually be traced out of 10,000 to Holocaust victims. It was a very difficult and often sad process, said Alexander Yolis, the Secretary General of the Independent Claims Tribunal. When we first set up the tribunal, we were sure that nearly all these accounts would be those of Nazi victims, but few were. 79% of the accounts declared dormant by the Swiss banks were traced to wealthy families who had just lost trace of their money. And so I now ask you this question. Does 
Israel belong to the Jews? Ask a group of Christians why they support Israel's efforts against the Palestinians. And you'll probably hear back the Jews hold the deed to the dirt, that God gave it to them. Oh, this can be quickly verified by checking the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 34.4, it states, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. Numerous passages in Genesis and Exodus speak for the same thing, but this is not the whole story, my friends. In Deuteronomy, Moses warns, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law, you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering and to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. You see, my friends, God was making covenant with Israel. Covenants are conditional. This is why they come with the promise of blessings and the warning of curses. If God's people faithfully obey his commands, they prosper. If they don't, God lowers the boom. Before the Almighty gave us the Holy Land 3,260 years ago, he made these conditions. If we abide by the Torah, it is ours. If not... We will be expelled. That explanation comes to us from the Orthodox Rabbi E. Schwartz. Now we know from Scripture that God's gift of the land to Abraham and his descendants was not unconditional. God threw them off the land a few times. Not that God broke the promise. God, my friends, never breaks a promise. But man certainly does renege on his end of the bargain. And when that happens, hello Assyrians. Hello, Babylonians. Hello, Rome. Right here is where dispensationalists or dispensationalists like Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye point to Ezekiel 37 and the promise of a restored Israel, which they say happened in 1948 with the founding of the modern-day nation Israel. Oh, sure, the Jews were scattered by the Romans, but they've returned. They're back in the land. That's how we know it's the end times. Well, maybe. But we should ask ourselves something. If the Israelites were driven from the land by God for not keeping covenant with him, why are they back on the land now and still not keeping covenant with him? This is a perennial problem among Orthodox Jews. For them, a political savior ignores the genuine cause of the exile and thus its genuine solution. God sent the Israelites eviction papers in the form of prophetic warnings about their sins and calls to repentance in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Those papers aren't void until repentance comes. And only through complete repentance will the Almighty alone, without any human intervention, redeem us from exile, says Rabbi Schwartz, who quickly moves to condemn Zionism as the brainchild of atheists, and denial of the covenantal understanding of the diaspora. And yet you see many Christians are clueless these days about the concept of covenant. Our ideas of New Testament Christianity have stripped our understanding of the vital doctrines 
of the Old Testament. As such, many Christians simply assume that modern-day Israel, despite its continual belief, is the restored Israel. This frequently leads Christians to uncritically accept whatever happens in the Holy Land by Israelis as okay, regardless of whether, in particular incidences, Israel might be wildly in the wrong. By muddling our theology and foreign policy this way, we approve of injustices as if they were permitted by heavenly warrant. Neither that or we refuse to consider any evidence against Israeli actions as going against God himself. This is not an adequate response to the Jewish-Palestinian conflict, my friends. There are biblical reasons for treating both sides with compassionate public justice in the same way that disputes should be settled between nations generally. In other words, the Bible does not teach us to be partial to Israel or to the Palestinians because either has a so-called special divine status. Echoing Rabbi Schwartz, a non-covenant-keeping people does not have a divine right to hold the land of promise. Israel has no warrant to a present experience of divine privilege when she is not keeping covenant with God. And as such, the Christian response should be to weigh judicially the claims of both sides to the land and actions to defend or take it and to continue to evangelize them both. Salvation is as much for the Jew as it is for the Palestinian. And we must not forget this last point. The Jews' final expulsion happened because they rejected the Messiah. And until they accept him, they are forever in exile. This is not an argument for pacifism, my friends, or a wink at Palestinian aggression. Aggressors of all types and forms must be stopped. Yes, killed if necessary. But we must not quickly assume the righteousness of the Israelis simply because they are God's chosen and the evil of the Palestinians because they are not. We come near the end of our hour. Touch of evil. Somewhat of a pickup and continuance of our series of several weeks ago, cast a giant shadow. Touch of evil. Does Israel belong to the Jews? By tomorrow, the entire transcript of today's program, the written transcript, will be posted on the Federal Observer. If you feel you have no need for an audio rendering of this program, then so be it, my friends. I willfully give to you the written transcript, which will be once again posted on the Federal Observer tomorrow. If the good Lord sees fit to bring us together tomorrow, maybe you've begun to get a different opinion of history after this hour. I certainly hope so. The truth may yet set us free, my friends. Until the good Lord sees fit to bring us together again, without apology, I am Jeffrey Bennett.
Consider this. Dead people see only what they want to see. And frankly, most of us are still dead. Let me give you the lessons of gold and five easy lessons. Number one, don't buy it because you need to make money. You buy gold because you need to protect the money you already have. Don't ever look at the price as a barrier. Look at it as an incentive. Number three, don't buy its paper pretenders. We talked about that a lot. Buy gold. Buy the real thing in the form of coins and bullion. Fourth, don't fall prey to glitzy television or Facebook ads. Do your due diligence instead. And that's what I try to provide you with and have for 26 and a half years on the air and 30 years in this profession. Fifth, don't allow naysayers to divert your interest. Allow yourself the right to protect your interests as you see fit. Jeff Bennett here. One of the ways you can do that is to contact Kettle Moraine Limited. Contact me by calling or texting me at 602-799-8214. 602-799-8214. You can also email me at kettlemoraineltd at cox.net. Let me help you protect your wealth and your family today. Once again, call or text us at 602-799-8214 or visit our website, sierramadrepreciousmetals.com. Be glad to help you out. Be glad to answer your questions. That's what we're here for. No pressure. Just good, hard, common sense. The decision then becomes up to you. You can't handle the truth. You're listening to Republic Broadcasting Network. Visit republicbroadcasting.org today because you can handle the truth.